Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. My name is Shannon Fisher. I'm your host tonight. The name of my show is The Authentic Woman, Perspectives on the Female Experience in America. And boy, do we have some perspectives on the female experience in America to present tonight. It is amazing. Normally, I have a guest that comes on and talks about a piece of artwork, whether it's a a book or performance art or something visual. And we talk about the themes that impact that work, especially the themes that involve being a woman normally on a a very micro, a very personal level. And I do love to delve in and, and get those personal stories from my guests. But this evening, we're going on a much more macro level. We're going huge, big scale. Uh, this guest impacts millions and millions and millions of people every day and has been impacting people for almost a century. Also, quite unusual. My guest is not human. My guest is a document. And this document has probably had more twists and turns and plot ups and downs than any guest or any piece of work I could have on the show. I am very pleased to introduce to you my guest this evening, the Equal Rights Amendment. I thought that it would be great to take a little deviation from the norm to really give a history of the Equal Rights Amendment. It has been in the news for almost 100 years, and it has gone through so many ups and downs and almost ratifications and passing through Congress. And oddly, uh, most people in the United States genuinely believe that the Equal Rights Amendment has already been passed. If you stop people on the street... I think the statistic is something like 75% of Americans already believe that it has been passed because it was passed in Congress in 1972. What they don't know is that it was not ratified by the necessary two-thirds of the states in order to make it uh, an amendment to our Constitution. So there's so much history behind this document, and there's so much of a story about the people involved, and really what has kind of brought us together and pulled us apart. Statistics show that 90% of Americans support the ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment. There still is a small opposition. The opposition has continually and steadily shrunk over the years and over the decades and over almost a century, Uh, but there still is a small opposition. So if you are one of the few people out there who is against the ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment, I hope that you'll still listen tonight because this is meant to give an educational perspective about the history and the ideas and themes behind it. Um, And so it's not meant to be a propaganda piece or to persuade anyone. Uh, 90% of Americans are in support of its ratification, so there really doesn't need to be any persuasion necessary. It's just a matter of the political dance to to get it passed once and for all. I also was so fortunate to be able to attend a Senate briefing by Senator Ben Cardin of Maryland last week, um, and that was dedicated to the Equal Rights Amendment. And so representatives from the National Council of Women's Organizations were there, and Many of them spoke uh, about different aspects of the Equal Rights Amendment and uh, what it would do for women in America and men in America uh, and the strategies of what we're doing right now to try to go ahead and get it ratified once and for all. So um, I'm going to take you through a history and then I'm going to play some clips from that Senate briefing so that you can hear in the words of women's rights leaders, some of whom have been 
working on this for decades and decades, and some of whom who have only been doing it for a few years, but all of them are experts experts in this field and uh, really share some great insight on the document that is my guest tonight. So welcome to the Equal Rights Amendment, and let's dive into its history. The Equal Rights Amendment was written by Alice Paul. Now, Alice Paul should be a familiar name to anyone who knows the history of women's rights. Um, she was instrumental in the suffrage movement, which ultimately successfully brought about the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which granted women the right to vote. After organizing the woman suffrage procession of 8,000 men and women, they picketed the White House for six months, and between June and November of 1917, 168 suffragists were jailed, suffering horrible conditions. They went on a hunger strike, and then once word got out to the public that the prison guards were beating and forcing these women to eat, President Woodrow Wilson ordered that they all be released. He subsequently publicly endorsed women's suffrage. And over the course of the next three years, the 19th Amendment was finally ratified on August 18th of 1920. Now, two days before that, Alice Paul is famously quoted as having said, I never doubted that equal rights was the right direction. Most reforms, most problems are complicated. But to me, there is nothing complicated about ordinary equality. I think that that is the truest statement that one could possibly make, and it really is kind of baffling why there is any opposition to the Equal Rights Amendment. Um, but there is opposition, and I'll tell you what that opposition is. Labor laws, uh, reformers who had worked to protect women in labor laws, um, they were afraid that the ERA was going to wipe that out. Um, social conservatives considered equal rights a threat to the existing power structure that's relatively patriarchal. Um, fundamentalist religious groups opposed the ERA, and also um, right-wing groups such as the Eagle Forum Stop ERA claimed that the ERA would deny women's right to be supported by her husband, that privacy rights would be overturned, that women would be sent to combat, well, women have already been sent to combat, and that abortion rights and homosexual marriages would be upheld under the Equal Rights Amendment. And these are arguments that still stand today. So the very fringe element still has a problem with the Equal Rights Amendment for the reasons that I just stated. Other than that, 90% of Americans support the ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment, and all of the concerns that the opponents are voicing and would definitely have to be dealt with in the courts. And so right now, uh, conversely, women have to fight like crazy in the courts to find anything close to equal rights because it's not provided for us in the Constitution. But back to the history. Um, with the 19th Amendment, the women's suffrage, being the only constitutional guarantee of women's rights, Alice Paul wrote and introduced the Lucretia Mott Amendment in 1923, which read... Men and women shall have equal rights throughout the United States and every place subject to its jurisdiction. Um, she rewrote the ERA in 1943 to what is now called the Alice Paul Amendment. That reads, equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. 
So the years are passing on. She has initially proposed this amendment in 1923. It has been introduced in every Congress every single year from 1923 to 1943, rewritten in 1943, um, continues to be introduced every single year thereafter. And then in the 1960s, the civil rights battles um, of the time that were involving race really provided an impetus for the second wave of um, females uh, actively demanding their equal rights. And so organized labor and mainstream groups finally joined the cause and women organized. And the Equal Rights Amendment finally passed the U.S. Senate and then the House of Representatives on March 22, 1972, as the proposed 27th Amendment to the Constitution. The only problem being that Congress placed a seven-year deadline on the ratification process. So the Equal Rights Amendment got 22 of the necessary 38 state ratifications in the first year. Uh, Two-thirds of the states have to ratify any amendment to the Constitution before it can then go back and actually become an amendment. So 38 is the magic number there for two-thirds, and that is the goal uh, for which they were shooting. So they got 22 ratifications in the states immediately, uh, and then the pace began to slow, opposition began to organize, the opposition that we just discussed, and only eight ratifications happened in 1973, three in 1974, one in 75, nothing in 1976, and then in 1977, Indiana became the 35th and so far the last state to ratify the ERA. And sadly, that year was also the year that Alice Paul died. So time passes, and unfortunately, the 1979 deadline is rapidly approaching. Um, there is no sign of further ratification from the three necessary states. So in 1978, the National Organization for Women coordinated a march of 100,000 supporters in Washington, D.C., and that was absolutely unprecedented at that time. Ellie Sneal will tell you a little bit more about this later in the program. Um, but bowing down to public pressure, Congress agreed, and they granted an extension uh, until June 30th of 1982. Unfortunately, June 30th of 1982 came and went. There were no further ratifications by the states, and the Equal Rights Amendment was dead. So on July 14, 1982, just two weeks after the deadline had passed, um, the ERA was reintroduced in Congress, and it has been before every single session of Congress since that time. The new legislation is essentially using the same strategy, um, except that the resolution does not include a deadline. Uh, the current legislation that is before Congress is by Senator Robert Menendez and Representative Carolyn Maloney. Uh, and they have new bills that impose no deadline. And this is essentially starting over. It's, they have to pass two-thirds in each House of Congress and then go off to the states and be ratified by the 38 states. But since the deadline has passed, if you assume that that is something that's going to stand, the only thing that can be done is to start over. And so that's why every single Congress someone in both houses proposes this legislation. But there is one new strategy that a lot of people think could possibly be the ticket to the final ratification of the ERA. It's called the three-state strategy. And it was um, developed through the 
ERA Summit, which was organized in Washington in 1991. The three-state strategy arose from the Madison Amendment. The Madison Amendment concerns changes in congressional pay. Now, it was passed by Congress in 1789, but it was not finally ratified until 1992. There was a 203-year ratification period. And the fact that the Madison Amendment took 203 years to get ratified by the states has led many to believe that Congress has the power to maintain the legal viability of the existing 35 state ratifications and that if we get three more states to pass it, the deadline can be removed and the ERA will become an amendment to the Constitution. It will be the Equal Rights Amendment. Uh, and this is the theme behind the resolution that has currently been proposed by Senator Ben Cardin. SJ Res 15 would remove the ratification deadline and thus paving the path for legal ratification of the ERA. And that is where things stand right now. In this short period of time, I left out a lot of the intricate details of the story, but that is the overall view of the Equal Rights Amendment from its inception to modern day. And right now there are many, many organizations and individuals working so hard, both for the original strategy and for the three-state strategy. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later on in the show, and you're going to hear from the voices of some of those women's rights leaders exactly what they're doing and exactly how much this means to them. For the sake of full disclosure, I am on the board of directors of UniteWomen.org. We are on the steering committee of the ERA task force, and I spoke with Karen Teagarden, the president of UniteWomen.org, and she wanted me to make sure to say that the organization fully supports the ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment, and we also support the ratification of the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, more commonly known as CEDAW. The United States is the only developed nation in the world that has not ratified it. Countries who ratify CEDAW are required to enshrine gender equality into their domestic legislation and repeal all discriminatory provisions in their laws and enact new provisions to guard against discrimination against women. So that is the history of the ERA, and that takes us to present day. Uh, last week, I was very fortunate to be invited to a Senate briefing that was hosted by Senator Ben Cardin of Maryland. Uh, and it was all about the ERA. He had a panel of guests, uh, scholars and experts, members of the National Council of Women's Organizations. The two co-chairs of the NCWO ERA task force were there. And all of them were extremely passionate and extremely interesting. Uh, the um, presentation, the panel discussion was amazing. And so I'm excited to be able to share clips from that with you tonight. Senator Cardin has recently introduced SJ Res 15, which means Senate Joint Resolution 15. And this resolution would remove the deadline for the ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment. And this is uh, a new approach. Uh, up until now, pretty much everybody has tried to start over because they assumed that the deadline had passed. And so the potential to ratify the original uh, that passed in 1972 in Congress was not going to happen. But uh, through some uh, interesting 
legal loopholes that we discussed earlier, um, it looks like we can possibly extend that deadline and go ahead and ratify the Equal Rights Amendment that was passed in 1972. So um, if we can get the two-thirds of the states to go ahead and, and three more states to ratify it in their state and Senator Cardin's uh, SJ Resolution 15 passes, then we're in good shape. So I would like to um, introduce to you Senator Cardin uh, as he spoke to the group at the Senate briefing last week. This is really an impressive group of people that are here and you've done so much over the years. And I start by saying thank you. Thank you for what you have done to make this country a stronger country. I have two granddaughters. Uh, it, this issue is important to this country. It's important to every family in this country. And uh, we've made a lot of progress because of the people in this room and others who have fought for justice in this country. We have made progress in uh, gender representation in the United States Congress. Still not where we need to be, but we've made progress. We've made progress in the workplace. We've made progress in all areas, but we're not there. We are still on that path. Uh, the inequities in the workplace and the paycheck is still prevalent here in the United States. We're still working on that. We're not there yet. And if you ever had concerns about whether things are going always in the right direction, listen to the Supreme Court debate this past week in the Hobby case and know that there are still serious issues of whether we will be on a continuous road towards progress or whether we're going to see some, some losses along the way. And, and there's so many other areas that we could talk about that we haven't gotten there yet. So I come here to say that we're still on that path for justice in America, for what is right, and for the economic future of our country. <coughs> and I thank you for your persistence. You all live very busy lives. You do a lot of things that are extremely important in your own personal life, your family life. But then you find time to be here, to speak out for social justice and human rights. So you really are the heroes, and I want to start a little bit with, with that and thanking you very much for, for your efforts. <laughs> We're here today because we do believe that we can get the support to pass the Equal Rights Amendment. We can get it done. We can get it done. <laughs> 35 states have ratified the Equal Rights Amendment. We only need three more states. And before I came up here, I was talking to, to a person who's working in Virginia, and she believes that we have a good chance to get other states to ratify if Congress takes the steps to say, that the ratification process is still open. This is not a, a radical departure. I think most of you know the 27th Amendment that dealt with pay for members of Congress. It took 203 years to get that ratified. <laughs> We're kind of young compared to that particular constitutional amendment. Uh, this is an amendment that all of us remember. I remember voting for the ratification in the Maryland legislature. I was proud of that vote. Maryland's one of those states that has ratified the Equal Rights Amendment. And guess what? We're still there. So uh, it is well past time for the Constitution of the United States to provide for equal rights. And that's what we're talking about. Justice Scalia, who I rarely quote, <laughs> has said there's nothing in the Constitution that requires discrimination against women, but there's nothing in the Constitution that prevents discrimination. 
Therefore, we don't have the protection that we should in our laws to speak to one of the basic values of this nation. I, I, I'm very proud of how we stand up to human rights violations around the world. And we do. How we stand up against abuses. But the first order is to take care of business here at home. And the ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment is exactly what we need to do. My name is Bettina Hagan. I'm the co-chair of the Equal Rights Amendment Task Force of the National Council of Women's Organizations. Today, our panelists and experts will brief you on the current status of the Equal Rights Amendment legislation, give an overview of women's economic status in America, and outline the benefits that sponsorship, passage, and ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment will bring to our country. What a great panel they lined up for this day. Bettina Hager is the uh, co-chair of the National Council of Women's Organizations ERA Task Force. And she was the moderator of the panel. And she did a fantastic job going from issue to issue to person to person and answering questions that some of the panelists had, clearly showing that she is one of the foremost experts on what is going on with the Equal Rights Amendment. And the panelists were Roberta Francis, who has been a feminist activist for more than 40 years. She is the co-chair of the National Council of Women's Organizations, ERA Task Force, as well. Uh, we had Chitra Punjabi, who is the vice president of membership for the National Organization for Women. We had Dr. Elise Gould, who is the Director of Health Policy Research for the Economic Policy Institute. We had Andrea Miller, the Executive Director of Progressive Democrats of America. And we had Eleanor Smeal, the Founder and President of the Feminist Majority. So if that isn't a panel of people who know what they are talking about and can try to inspire people to enact change I don't know what is. I look forward to sharing with you some of their stories today and we're going to begin with an anecdote by Chitra, Vice President of Membership for the National Organization for Women. My first introduction to the ERA was through my work with the Sewell Belmont House Museum. Some of you may know it. It's that federal brick style house um, on Second and Constitution. And I was a member of the development staff there. And I would often give donors private tours of the exhibits. The tour covered the history of Alice Paul's lifelong work with the National Women's Party to get uh, equality for women. And it started with her fight to get women the right to vote. And then, of course, I would go into talking about her role in the first drafting of the ERA in 1923. I would share the campaign for the ERA and its history with my tour. And inevitably, whenever I mentioned that the ERA stopped short of being ratified at the 1982 deadline, people, especially the women, would look at me in surprise and say, but I thought we passed it, or what do you mean we don't have an ERA? It was just unimaginable to the people on my tours that ensuring equality for men and women wasn't written into the Constitution, and the effort to do just that had been unsuccessful. Despite the fact that efforts have thus far been unsuccessful, 
People working toward the goal of ratifying the ERA are extremely optimistic and coming at it from just about every angle. Karen Teagarden, the president of UniteWomen.org, is on the steering committee of the ERA task force with the National Coalition for Women's Organizations with Bettina and Roberta, who are the co-chairs. And uh, and we're extremely honored to be uh, in the company of these women and so many other organizations, including now the feminist majority who were there at the Senate briefing and legislators and attorneys and people of all across the country really joining together to to make this thing happen. And they're doing it in so many ways and spreading the word in every way they possibly can. Through social media efforts, they're educating the 75% of Americans who think the ERA was already ratified. We also um, are looking at a lot of bipartisan support. There are a lot of Republicans in a lot of places who are co-sponsoring the bills in both the unratified states and in the House of Representatives and in the United States Senate. And among the ranks of the, the Republican Party, there are many people as well who are uh, really committed to making this happen. So it's interesting to see all these organizations and people working together from different walks of life, different ideologies, different political parties. That is certainly not something you see very often in today's politically polarized world. So it is, um, it's exciting. And it's also exciting to see that equal rights is something that people are making a priority across the board. And that it's not so much a matter of whether we should make this happen, but it is a matter of how and when, and that is significant progress. Sad that it took a century to get there, but we're there and we are rolling with it. So um, I would like to now play some clips from Ellie Smeal and Roberta Francis discussing the bipartisan nature um, and the cooperation that is going on in the process uh, and fight for getting the ERA ratified. You know, we have several uh, House co-sponsors that are Republican, but also we've, we've had Republican support, and obviously at this stage not as much, but we have had Republican support, and we do have Republican support in the various states. Uh, and I think we have got to come with a new brain set that we're going to get more people. Time has changed. When we went through the last time, they would ask us a question about women in combat. They're not going to ask you that question anymore. That's been changed. There's a lot of things that have changed. And, and, and so I just don't think we should assume we don't have somebody. I think we should assume we have them and, and act on that. You, you, you have a bigger um, target zone and a bigger chance if you think positively. So I don't think that you, you should think in terms of this is one side. This isn't. People want equal rights for their daughters, and I believe women want it, and that gender gap is massive. They can see that gender gap. Just look at the voting. It is growing because of the perception of, equality, uh, of who's with us on equality. But I just said one thing. Um, I do want to clarify with Bill here, especially that we do have uh, Senator Murkowski from, and uh, Senator Kurt, who are signed on to SJRAS 15, and those are both Republican senators. And I need to add, because Katina and I are both constituents of Congressman Rodney Freelinghausen in New Jersey. He's been a longtime co-sponsor, and um, in fact, this 
most recent newsletter he sent out to his constituents had a, a Keep Some Equal Rights Amendment, and Richard Hanna, who's in uh, Seneca Falls, uh, within his district, I believe, Congressman Hanna. Bills reintroducing the ERA for ratification by this traditional process without a time limit this time have been introduced in every session of Congress since the 1982 deadline passed. And in the 113th current Congress, these bills are SJ Res 10, lead sponsor Senator Robert Menendez of New Jersey, the state I come from, and uh, HJ Res 56, lead sponsor Representative Carolyn Maloney from New York, who's been the lead sponsor of the ERA bill in the House for many long sessions. Well, that is some great information from pretty powerful leaders about the traditional strategies that we've been following to, uh, to get the Equal Rights Amendment ratified. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about the three-state strategy. Um, it's, you know, definitely a newer approach, and it's an uphill battle because what we're fighting is people constantly telling us the deadline has passed so there is no reason for our state to vote to ratify this because it's null and void. The deadline has passed. Give it up. But no one's giving up. So um, one of the states at the forefront of the three-state strategy is Virginia. It seems that Virginia is always at the forefront of things that are happening in women's rights, especially recently in the last few years. There's been a lot in the news about the um, action in Virginia and reaction uh, from activists and uh, voters to uh, some legislation that was going through the General Assembly that doesn't have anything to do with the Equal Rights Amendment. But uh, Virginia women are mobilized and they are absolutely inspired and so i'm going to share with you now a quick clip from candace graham who is with women matter use your power she was there in the audience with me at the senate briefing the other day and she's going to talk a little bit about what she says to legislators when she's discussing the bipartisan support that the equal rights amendment truly has in virginia and all around the country my name is Candace Graham. I'm with Women Matter Use Your Power. And when we brought the bill to uh, the legislature in Virginia, one of our talking points when we were trying to get co-sponsors was that this was a nonpartisan bill and we wanted bipartisan support. And if this was something we could all come together on because when you give women more opportunities in the marketplace and you pay them equally for equal work, then we're helping lift women off of public assistance. And that's something we all want to see happen. And those are ideas that people lobbying for the Equal Rights Amendment in the 15 unratified states are really trying to carry through and try to get across that bipartisan nature of this issue. While we're talking about the unratified states, let me list for you the 15 states that have yet to not ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. Alabama, Arizona, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Illinois, Louisiana, Mississippi, Missouri, Nevada, North Carolina, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Utah, and Virginia. Not surprisingly, most of these are southern states. Andrea Miller with PDA, she's trying to do her best to help 
this movement in whatever way that she can, both on a national and a local level, and she's trying to give a hand where possible to help push that along. So Andrea is going to tell you um, what's going on in several of the states and tell you some very interesting stories about what happened in this year's General Assembly in Virginia. When we were presenting before the Virginia State Senate, there were um, five Republicans that were on the Rules Committee. And so we were sure that the one woman senator was going to be with us because she came over and said, hey, you know, I'm going to support you. What was really shocking was 100% of the Rules Committee voted us unanimously out of the Rules Committee. So we got all five Republicans. And when that bill went to the floor, we had a really interesting thing happen. Virginia has 40 senators. So when they took the initial vote, it was 32 to 8. When they published the vote, it was 25 to 8. The original senators on the Rules Committee stuck by their vote. Seven others weaseled out. There are currently 15 states that did not ratify the original ERA. And um, big major surprise, many of those states are southern states. <laughs> so the South was not willing to stand for its women. So we've been working on removing the ratification deadline here in Washington, D.C. and in our district congressional offices. And we have been working on bringing legislation forward in the unratified states. And this is where we are right now. The state of Arizona brought a bill to ratify the ERA. It had been so long since they brought a bill to ratify the ERA, they had no idea what to put in the bill. So I get a desperate call. What should we say? So I sent them a copy of what we did in Virginia. Virginia has been introducing ratification of the ERA for a long time. We, we even managed to pass it in the Senate a few times, and we were successful again this particular year in getting it through the Senate. Well, as anybody will tell you that's familiar with Virginia politics, we were able to get the other side to bring the bill up in committee. Florida has been presenting an ERA bill for forever. In Illinois, this is going to be our next big fight. So they have the Senate sponsor lined up, they have the House sponsor lined up. Yes, Illinois is an unratified state. They're unratified because it takes three quarters of their legislature to ratify a constitutional amendment. It's a huge, huge reach. And it normally, when it was introduced and failed, failed by one vote. So we are going to need everybody to stand up with Illinois and push this over the line. 
Um, Missouri is also bringing a bill. So Missouri has a bill. They haven't had a bill for a while, but they've got a bill now, and Illinois is going to help Missouri. So the other states, Nevada, Louisiana, and North Carolina, based on the way their legislatures work, were not able to present a bill this year, but they will be presenting legislation next year. And Virginia presents a bill every year. So we will be back. We may have been disappointed, but we will not be discouraged, and we will not be denied. There were women's rights leaders there from all across the country, and uh, from the audience during the question period, Leanne DiLorenzo uh, from VoteERA.org wanted to make a comment about the fact that this is something that isn't going to simply help women. Uh, it's also going to significantly help families. One of the things that we will be doing is we will be saying, in fact, the Equal Rights Amendment is not just for women's equality. It is really for fairness for the whole family. Because again, if there are such disparities in pay and benefits, um, it's not just the women that are suffering alone, it is the children, the family, and in a broader sense. So that is something we will be addressing in our campaign. And then Andrea Miller from PDA commented, Every family, every man, every woman, what they really are looking for is a reliable path to economic security. And economic security is a theme you hear over and over and over when talking about equality throughout the entire civil rights movement, whether it's race or sex. Um, it, it is really difficult to find an, an even start. Uh, and we had a really, really interesting panelist, and it was Dr. Elise Gould, who is the Director of Research at the Economic Policy Institute. And she talked about economic security and the disproportionate amount of it that women have. And, and she shared with us some statistics about salaries and standard of living and access to education, um, things that really make women economically vulnerable. So this is a, a very interesting clip from Dr. Elise Gould that women are concentrated in low-wage sectors. According to a recent White House report, women are also still concentrated in low-wage sectors such as health care support and personal care and underrepresented occupations with high average wages such as STEM occupations. Furthermore, the National Women's Law Center finds that women are three-quarters of workers in the ten largest occupations that typically pay low wages. So we're talking about the ten largest low-wage jobs, those sectors. And over one-third of low-wage workers are women of color. It's interesting to note that these jobs have dominated women's job growth in the recovery. 35% of the total net increase in women's employment over the past four years was in these low-wage occupations, nearly twice as large as men's. And even in these low-wage occupations, women working full-time make 10% less than men. Recent female college grads are making $9 an hour as opposed to men, which are making about 22.67 an hour. So you see a pretty large gap there. Among those with advanced degrees, the gender wage gap grows throughout women's lifetime. And it finds that men and women with professional degrees have similar earnings in their 20s, and then the earnings gap widens over time, so that by their late 30s and 40s, men earn more than 50% more than women. They also find in that same report that among all people who work full-time year-round, women make 70 cents for every dollar men make. A lifetime of earnings inequality means that women are more economically vulnerable in retirement. 
in a report that I did with some colleagues at EPI, we, we define economic vulnerability as having income that is less than two times the supplemental poverty threshold. In fact, women are more likely to be economically vulnerable than men among both the young elderly and the older elderly. Women ages 65 to 79 are 9 percentage points more likely to be economically vulnerable than men, and women 80 and older are 13 percentage points more likely to be economically vulnerable than men. And I think what we heard earlier was talk of the ACA and what happened in the Affordable Care Act with eliminating price discrimination. Um, and the insurance companies eventually signed on because they realized they were going to have a lot of comers to purchase insurance. So they said, okay, fine, we won't discriminate. I think that um, that's a classic example of a direction that we can go is to eliminate that kind of discrimination in insurance markets across the board. Um, I think that uh, when people argue against wages, higher wages for women, and you're also talking about um, really lifting up the bottom and making sure that people are paid um, not only for comparable work, but paid decently, right? You heard, um, sorry, I have to say your name, talk about, you know, um, the importance of really lifting people out of poverty, right? And um, if anyone wants to go after anyone else's um, pocketbook, Right? There's, you're going to have some, you may have some problems, but I think that what we've seen in this country just generally is a growing gap between the have and the have-nots, right? This is not just a gender story. This is a story about uh, um, the top really reaping the rewards of economic growth over the last three decades. And that is not the way the economy has always run in this country. We saw many decades, in fact, where we had far more equal growth and far more growth um, uh, you know, across the whole income distribution, though, across the whole wage distribution. So we have room to go back to a world where that um, can occur. And sure, those who have the power are going to resist that, and that, that will happen no matter what fight we're, we're leaving here. Well, that was some great insight on the economic inequality of women in the United States. And uh, we've got some more comments here from Ellie Smeal of the Feminist Majority about female economic inequality. Interstate commerce covers a lot. And, and most of the major employers of our country are interstate actors. So you're starting to come under federal law. But most importantly, you are setting by passing a constitutional amendment, a national standard. Right now, for example, who is the biggest employer in the United States? Federal government. The federal government. So you would be requiring at least pay equity and, pay and equal pay in the largest employer. But more importantly, when you consider it as the largest buyer in the country, the biggest contractor in the country, it would be easy for them to set a requirement that they require their con the people they contract with to give equal pay. That would cover millions of more workers. So it, 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 it would establish a standard that would indeed enhance our ability to fight for equal pay. But equal pay is not just what you're being paid that minute. It's your potential to be paid. And it could give us equal status in um, education. And here is Chitra Pandabi from the National Organization for Women talking about other benefits that the Equal Rights Amendment would bring to women and men in the United States. So the question is what do women gain with an ERA? The answer is quite frankly a lot. 
To begin with, it would be an explicit guarantee that all rights protected by the Constitution would be held equally for all citizens without regard to sex. One might argue that the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause does just that. However, the 14th Amendment has only been applied to sex discrimination since 1971, and legal scholars, including Justice Scalia, have said that in their reading of the Constitution, the document does not explicitly prohibit sex discrimination. The idea that equality for women under the law is open to interpretation is simply not good enough. With an ERA, we guarantee a clearer and stricter judicial standard when it comes to cases regarding sex discrimination. In fact, the passage of the ERA would greatly enhance sex discrimination law which would pr provide equality for women and men. It's important to remember that the ERA's passage would have a real and direct impact on women's lives. This is especially true when we're talking about pay equity. Health insurance is another area in which an ERA, an ERA would have a real-world impact. Until the Affordable Care Act, women were charged higher premiums than men for the same coverage. The ACA now prohibits gender rating, so women are no longer being charged more for the same coverage. However, if the ACA were repealed, without the guarantee of equality for the sexes under the ERA, the differences in premiums could be reinstated. When women are already earning less in comparison to their male peers, this puts an undue economic burden on women. It means that sometimes the decision to forego health insurance altogether must be made. And again, for women of color, that decision can be devastating. As a group, they are more likely to have difficulty accessing health care to begin with, and being uninsured makes that access harder. Passing laws to remedy these issues is certainly one way to approach it. But writing the ERA into the Constitution would truly guarantee what Alice Paul initially set out to achieve in 1923 when she first drafted it. Equal justice under law for all citizens. Wasn't that an excellent, excellent overview of the benefits that the Equal Rights Amendment would provide our country? And our next clip is of Bettina Hager of the National Council for Women's Organizations, the co-chair of the ERA task force and the moderator of the panel, uh, introducing Ellie Smeal and talking a little bit about the work that Ellie has done for the ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment. And then we will listen to Ellie talk in her own words about the experiences that she's had. From 1977 to 1982, as president of the National Organization for Women, Eleanor Smeal led the national drive to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment and to pass in Congress the joint resolution to extend the ERA deadline in 1978. This campaign was at the time the largest grassroots and lobbying campaign in the modern women's movement. The ERA campaign reshaped the contours of women's political participation in the U.S. and demonstrated the strength and breadth of public support for women's rights. We did our homework and we saw that the deadline is not in the body of the amendment. It's in the preamble. <coughs> and it was not voted on by the states when they ratified. It was only voted on by Congress. It was ruled that it only would take a majority vote. And so we started. Now why? Because, you know, we, I think there's this invisible uh, fact that we don't like, we don't talk about. There was an opposition. Just like there was an opposition to the women's vote, 
there was a determined opposition to the Equal Rights Amendment. And that determined opposition did not always play fair in many, many ways. I personally think it was probably ratified in both Illinois and Florida. And I could go through that as another whole uh, lesson. Uh, but, you know, it, the, the rules were constantly changing. And votes that were promised, people ran on them, they would switch them. And switch them in such a way that it was hard for us to get at it. Anyway, we went for the extension. I cannot even express to you how big that campaign was. Just to give you an idea of the size, when uh, we marched, and this was the day when there weren't that many big marches, but we decided to march on Alice Paul's uh, July 9th, 1978, which was, I think, the, uh, the her birthday. I can't remember her death day. One month. Yeah, uh, death day. Okay. It was, we weren't celebrating that. But it had a symbolic message. But the important thing was, it was in the summer session. We had to pass it by November of 78. Um, and basically, when we marched, it was 100 and some thousand people on the streets. Something like 125,000, which was really big then. I know that the last march that I helped, uh, I was on the steering committee for, we got 1,100,000 in, in 2004 for reproductive rights, but that was how we learned how to do marches. This was the first march we had done since the suffrage of any major side. <coughs> we went to Macy's, we went to the unions, we went to the peace movement. We didn't know how to do a march. So we figured out a recipe and it kept getting bigger. But as we marched, this is a little statistic that I don't think many people know, over 400,000 telegrams, and I asked our young staff um, if they knew what a telegram was. <laughs> and I have to tell you, not one of them did. I really felt angry. But anyway, we sent 400,000 telegrams, and it would have been more, but we closed down Western Union, which was the only group that delivered telegrams on the same day. That, so it was a big campaign, and that was just the beginning of it. We went door to door. We went to every House seat, every Senate seat. And we only got out of the key House committee by one vote. This was close. And uh, it was close, in my opinion, and I don't know if I should say it, but I do think the financial interest, the business interest, the insurance interest, they were our major opponent. Mm -hmm. Let there be no mistake about it. Uh, there is, when we lead with economic equality, there are those who profit from charging more women more for the same policies. There are people who profit from underpaying adult women, etc. And those forces are very strong, the moneyed interests. Anyway, we did it, we passed it, and we then went on. But we didn't do what we really wanted to do. The real original bill that was introduced was no time limit on equality. There was to be no time limit. You know, I can tell you all the slogans, and, and by the way, you don't need fancy, expensive consulting firms to think of slogans. <laughs> the best time to think them up is in the middle of the night with the hardcore activists that just give it to Anyway, um, but there was no time limit. We wanted no time limit, and it was put onto the bill this short time 
in the House Judiciary Committee. We couldn't get out of committee. And it was put on in purpose mm -hmm. because it was just enough time not to give us a new election in the, for the state senates because the senates are staggers and, and it gave us short of four years so we couldn't get at the state senates. Um, and I could go, you know, so, and I know the exact person, by the way. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and one guy voted three ways, by the way, on this vote. Uh, that, that's another little thing. But we, uh, and we filled the galleries, we filled all the hearing rooms. I'm so happy today is standing room only. And by the way, if anybody can't see it, this is intergenerational. And it was intergenerational then. I was young then. Not that so, but I'm not ready to check out. We're going to see this in my lifetime. The country is changing on all human rights issues, and people now are so proud of the women's rights movement. Remember, when we started this quest in the 70s, in the late 60s, we were a minority movement. Today, we not only have 96% of people wanting the Equal Rights Amendment, an unheard of number, we also have a majority of women who self-identify as feminists. The fight for women's rights is not only immensely popular, it is the wave of the future. It looks like it is the wave of the future, the wave of the past, the present, and the future. And that was uh, incredibly inspiring, listening to all of the stories that took us to where we are now. And she, uh, later on in the panel discussion, made an extremely impassioned statement about the people who are part of the movement to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment and their dedication. And so I think the last clip that I'm going to play from the Senate briefing that Senator Cardin held uh, is of Ellie Smeal of the Feminist Majority talking about what is happening right now in the fight for equal rights for women. The whole thing is, we need us all. We need the best of our brains. We need the best of our energy. We need everybody working and pulling the oar. The thing that's so exciting about the current campaign, and there are several going on. There's all these state efforts. There's now the three state efforts. There's the start over effort. We're going to get it one way or the other. And it is coming not from the national level. This is coming from women who absolutely want equality in their lifetimes. Well, it certainly is difficult to follow that speech. Uh, I love her passion, and I love the passion of all of the women's rights activists, well, human rights activists, civil rights activists, who are in support of the Equal Rights Amendment. It indeed is the wave of the future, and I think at this point we've got enough people all around the country that absolutely refuse to give up that this time we're going to find a way to make it work. So I am so thankful that you all joined me this evening to listen to me tell the history and to listen to other women's rights leaders tell the history uh, of where we went from Alice Paul writing this and giving it to Congress in 1923 to here we are in 2014 uh, at a Senate briefing on how to get the Equal Rights Amendment ratified. I Thank you all for being here. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to email me. My email address is shannonfishershow 
at gmail.com. And you can also, I think, navigate through the links on this podcast page to get to my website. My Facebook page for the show is Facebook slash Shannon Fisher Show. Uh, This is a copyrighted broadcast from Authors on the Air Global Radio Network produced by Pam Stack. And thanks so much to Senator Ben Cardin and the National Council for Women's Organizations for allowing us to audio tape the Senate briefing and share some of that with my listeners tonight. I have included a link to the YouTube broadcast of the entire Senate briefing that Senator Cardin held on the Authors on the Air website page for this episode. So uh, feel free to go and find that link and click through. And it's two hours from beginning to end. And I have to say it was it was really riveting time. And it was even exciting to go back as I was making this broadcast and listen to the clips and figure out what to include and what not to include. It was really difficult to cut anything out. So if you have the time, I highly recommend going and, and watching the whole thing. Everything we do is a team effort, and I think if we look at more things in life that way, then we'll get a lot more accomplished. Have a lovely evening, and I look forward to talking to you next week. For the Authentic Woman Perspectives on the Female Experience in America, this is Shannon Fisher. Good night.